Happy New Year to you. I should explain to you that uh, Carolyn is going to be taking on the children's ministry in addition to the women's ministry, which uh, means for the next couple of months until we find a replacement. If you happen to see her, uh, let me know how she's doing. (laughs) I also might be looking for a few meals. Uh, I'll accept any invitations during that time. Uh, This is show-and-tell time. Um, This uh, was presented to me by some of my fishing friends, and uh, I thought I would show it to you. It's good to be in the fraternity. I'm glad I'm accepted now. I've often thought what it would be like to be a real, live, honest-to-goodness fishing legend like Ted Trueblood. Now, be honest now. What man has not secretly fantasized about being a legend? You know what it's like. You'd walk into a fly fishing shop, and you'd put a hush on the entire crowd. Uh, People would uh, nudge each other, and they would whisper, There's old double-hall Dave. Um, Unfortunately, it hasn't quite worked out that way for me. I've never achieved that fleeting five minutes of fame that Andy Warhol assumed all of us that we would have. Uh, Like Ogden Nash, most of my, uh, if you define achievement as progress toward perfection, most of my fishing achievements have been progress in the other direction. Uh, I'm actually noted more for the number of times that I've fallen into the South Fork of the Boise River than any fish I've taken out of it. Most of my uh, friends won't fish downstream from me anymore. They claim that my uh, thrashing through their water spooks the fish. But um, honestly, now it would it would be great to be uh, to be known at some point in our life as an honest to goodness, sure enough, real life legend. And in thinking about that this past week, I started thinking about the stuff of which legends are made, and I thought of some words. In the book of Hebrews that I'd like to call your attention to this morning, will you turn with me to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, chapter 1. And we're going to begin a new series in Hebrews next week. This is something of a warm-up for that uh, study. Uh, The author writes, and I'll tell you now, I'll expand on this a bit more next week, but I'll tell you now I have no idea who the author of, of Hebrews is. The author tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Or to translate it another way, this is what the old timers became legendary for. They became legends because of, because of their faith. Now, what follows is a list of these ancients, Abel in verse 4, Enoch in verse 5, Noah in verse 7, Abraham in verse 8 and following, Isaac in verse 20, Jacob in verse 21, Joseph, Moses' parents in verse 23, Moses, and then 31, Rahab, and then in 32, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, that is, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and the other prophets. Now, my question is, who are these people, and what did they accomplish? Their achievements are given summarily 
in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed uh, foreign armies. Not bad, huh? Uh, Especially for a group of losers. As you read through this list of people and uh, you go back into the Old Testament and look at their accomplishments, it becomes very clear that these people initially had very little going for them. Abel, for example, whose name means uh, seems to mean frail or weak or listless, something of that nature, comes across as a, not a very strong individual, not a very powerful person. Uh, Enoch, we're told, began to walk with God when he was 65 years of age, which meant that he spent the first 65 years of his age, the uh, first 65 years of his life trying to avoid God. Uh, Noah had something of a drinking problem. Abraham would be called today an abusive husband. Uh, Isaac was a, was a mother's boy. Jacob was a con artist. Uh, Joseph, if you know anything about his early life, was a little brat. Uh, Moses had an anger problem. He killed an Egyptian when he was in Egypt, and he tried to kill a rock a little later on. Rahab was a call girl. Samson was a womanizer. Jephthah was the head of a street gang. David was an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. Uh, Samuel was the head of what we would call today a dysfunctional family. And uh, as you look at the prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah, the man whom God told to go east, and Nineveh, and who went due west. And as you look at this list, you see that these people are very much in our league. They're very ordinary people, which is the class that most of us uh, fall into. Uh, They did not have an edge on us. If they achieved anything at all, if they became legends, if there's anything special about their life, there had to be another dynamic than their personality or their education or their background or their experience. There was something else going for them. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what it is. It's faith. These people had authentic faith. Now that raises the question, what is faith? And the author defines faith for us in verse 1. Actually, he tells us what faith does, and then he tells us what faith is. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Literally, faith is the foundation of hope. It's the root from which the bud and the flower and the fruit of hope grows. Faith is what enables us to look forward into our life with hope and with expectation. Faith helps us to realize that this isn't all there is. There's more to life than this. But that doesn't understand what faith is, so the writer goes on to tell us what faith actually is. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. Now that translation can be misleading because it can give us the impression that Faith is a matter of psyching ourselves into believing certain things that are almost impossible to believe. And for some people, that's very difficult to do. We have to believe in God. I don't know of anyone, even atheists, who don't 
way down deep inside, believe in God. We just have to. But there are a lot of people who can't trust him. They actually can't trust him. Life has been so hard for them. Perhaps they were abused as children or they've had so many difficult things happen to them. Circumstances have run against them time and time again to the point where they find it impossible to trust God. And it, it therefore does no good for them to walk around the house saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, because it doesn't work. They can't talk themselves into faith. And when they read a passage like this, faith is the certainty of things unseen, they think that they will never be a person of faith. And that's tragic, because faith is the most important thing in the world. Faith is what pleases God, as the writer of, of Hebrews tells us. Faith alone. Only faith will do. Something other than faith won't do. And so the question is, how can I generate faith? Well, let, let me try to do a, a little better job of translating this, this verse, at least in terms that we can understand. The word certain actually uh, means to try something out, to try something on for size. It's a legal term uh, originally, was a legal term originally. It was used to describe the process of trying a case in court. A case would be brought into court and proved out. Now, that's, that's, the, that's the meaning of this term. Faith is not certainty so much as it's trying something out. It's acting upon something. Acting upon what? Well, something that comes from the unseen world. Faith is trying out things you can't see. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about truth that comes to us from the non-spiritual world, non-material world, from the spiritual world, from, from the, the realm of God's things. Faith, basically, is trying out what God says is true. This is, he's talking about truth that comes to us from the realm of the spirit that's just as real, even more real than the things that we see around us. Now, all through uh, the Christmas season, we've been uh, implored and begged and uh, bullied into buying certain things that we can see or taste or touch or spray on or roll on, or roll in or ride in or put on that will make us feel better about ourselves. These are the things that will make us more secure. These are the things that we see that we think matter. And these are the things we're told to believe in. Try these things on. Drive this car, wear this kind of clothing, spray this sort of perfume on you, and you'll be a real man or a real woman. That's trusting the things that are seen. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is basically trusting things that we don't see and trusting ourselves to things that come to us out of the spiritual realm. Simply put, faith is trying out God's word. Faith is not believing things that are hard to believe. Faith is doing things that are sometimes very hard to do. Now, as you read down through this list, that's exactly the point that the author is making. These people didn't believe hard things. They did things. Truth came to them from, the, from outside, came to them from, from the world of spiritual things, and they acted on that truth sometimes against all sorts of counterindications. Sometimes it was very difficult to do what God asked them to do. They just did it. 
But that's what faith is. It's doing what God has asked us to do. Now look at the list. Read the list. By faith, Abel did what? He offered to God a better sacrifice. Abel was a uh, shepherd. His brother Cain was a farmer. Uh, Raised uh, produce. God said to both of them, bring a lamb for a sacrifice. Abel brought one of his lambs. Cain brought some of his best zucchini. And he presented them to the Lord. The Lord said, no, no, I want a lamb. Cain said, what's wrong with my zucchini? Got a prize at the fair last year. Great zucchini. God said, I don't want your zucchini. I want a lamb. I'll explain it to you later, but I want a lamb. This went on apparently for a long period of time. The Bible makes it very clear that this was not simple, uh, not one act of sacrifice, but a number of sacrifices Cain went on relentlessly as, uh, doing his, uh, going his own way. He would not listen to God. He wouldn't obey. Abel kept bringing the lamb. Genesis tells us that uh, Cain became depressed. His face fell. God said, if you do what is right, and here, I, here I'm quoting from Genesis 4, if you do what's right, there'll be a lifting up. Your depression will be lifted. One reason we become depressed is because we feel guilty, because we're doing what's wrong. It's not the only reason people become depressed, but speaking from experience, I can tell you that when I don't do what God asks me to do, I feel guilty, and I should feel guilty, and I get depressed. And so God said to Cain, if you don't want to be depressed anymore, do the right thing. If you do, he said, there will be a lifting up. But you know the story, Cain would not do the right thing, and things got worse, uh, as, as the Lord put it, sin is lying at the door, it's crouching at the door, it's ready to master you. Sin mastered him, he killed his brother. Abel was commended because he did what God asked him to do. That's very simple. Faith is doing what God tells us to do. Enoch is... Uh, Another example that, that the writer produces for us here. Uh, Enoch uh, lived for 65 years, as I said, not giving God the time of day. And then he received a revelation. We don't know how he received it, but in some way God spoke to Enoch and he told him the flood was coming. The, uh, uh, the writer of Genesis puts it uh, in a very interesting way. He says, after the birth of, Enoch, uh, of Methuselah, he lived 65 years, Methuselah, Methuselah was born... After the birth of, the, of Methuselah, Enoch began to walk with God. What happened? Well, God revealed to him the fact that the flood was coming. Methuselah's name, as best we can determine, means when he dies, it will be sent. What will be sent? The flood. Which, incidentally, is why Methuselah lived so long. It's an indication of the grace of God. Methuselah lived 969 years. Because God waited 969 years for, for the people who were on the earth at that time to repent. But the writer tells us that when Enoch got that word of revelation, he began to walk with God. When nobody else wanted to walk with God, Enoch did. And the writer of Hebrews tells us because he sought out God. He was pleasing to God. There was a very subtle but a very profound shift in his thinking. Instead of thinking about things on this world that would give him happiness and supply the hunger in his heart, he realized that all of this was going to be destroyed someday, and so he began to center on God himself. He began to walk with God. That's all he did. So his faith is demonstrated 
by his doing what the Lord asked him to do. Noah is another example. You know the story of Noah. God told him that the flood was was coming, and so Noah began to build his uh, his monstrous uh, uh, super boat, an embarrassing thing to do, far from you know streams and rivers and oceans without a cloud in sight. This thing was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. No one had ever seen a boat like that in their life. And yet Noah persisted in building his ridiculous, monstrous boat because God told him to. Abraham, we're told, when called to go to a place he would later receive of his inheritance, obeyed. We read that on the screen. Abraham was very profitable. Uh, was in a very profitable business in Ur of the Chaldees. He left his home and his family and he went to Canaan, the darkest place in the face of the earth, because God told him to. Uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Verse twenty: Both Jacob and Esau were scoundrels. And yet God had said that he would bless, he would enrich the lives of these two men. And so, on the basis of what God had said about these two boys, Jacob. Or Isaac blessed his, his sons. Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. Joseph spoke about the exodus of the Israelites because God had told him that his people would be returned to the land of Canaan. And so he asked him to take his bones back to Canaan and bury him there. Wrote that into his will. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover. Verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies. She didn't pick up the phone and call the king's agents. She welcomed them. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and so on, and so on, and so on. You can read the stories for yourself, but in each case, these were people who tried out truth from the outside. They simply did what God asked them to do. Now, let, let, me, let me show you a corroborating passage. Would you turn with me to Luke 17? These are Jesus' words. <clears throat> This is a familiar passage. This is the passage that talks about forgiveness in the, in the fact that, uh, that we need to extend forgiveness an infinite number of times. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles in chorus all rolled their eyes and said, increase our faith. I don't know who they looked at in the apostolic van, but they were thinking about uh, their friends and others and those who would, who would sin against them time and time and time again, and they, and, they, and they should forgive. They said, increase our faith. Jesus tells two stories, neither of which seem to be apropos. But if you think about them for a moment, they're, 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 they're very significant. Verse 6, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. 
This idea of saying to a mulberry tree or a mountain or to something else be removed and planted in the sea was a very common idiom in that day of doing something that's very hard, impossible to do. Jesus is saying is the issue is not the largeness of your faith. If you have a little faith, you can do impossible things. And then he proceeds to tell them what little faith is. Uh, Verse 7, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're just unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. In other words, obedience is our business. We've only done what we're supposed to do. You see, it it appears as though the Lord brushes aside their request, increase our faith, and he tells two stories that seem to have no relevance at all. But what the Lord is saying is the issue is not a large faith. The issue is is it's a very small thing that we're talking about here. And the small thing is to simply do what Jesus asked you to do. Whether it's hard, whether it's easy, whether it's something small, whether it's something large, faith is simply doing what God has called us to do. Now, several results accrue when we, when we see faith in that light. The first is that we grow in our ability to do. We are blessed in our doing, as James puts it. We're enriched in our doing. We're given God's grace. We're given all of God's power. We're giving, given the, the, the power that created Design, drives, maintains the universe in order to do what God has called us to do. We're not left to ourselves. Now, I can't explain. We've often talked about the whole process of sanctification and who's responsible for what. Do I choose to obey? Do I simply obey? Does God move my will? The, the whole process of salvation is presented as something as a mystery in, in the New Testament, but it seems... It seems to mean that that both are involved, that we choose, we act, we obey, and yet it's God who is willing and choosing and obeying in us when we choose to take the next step of faith, whatever it is, all the power of God is available to us to act. That's why Jesus said, all you that are laboring and heavy laden come unto me that you might find rest. That sounds like all you have to do is relax, but Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and And learn of me, because I am meek and and humble, and you'll find rest for your souls. The yoke is the yoke of doing the will of God. That sounds very onerous, sounds very difficult, sounds hard. But Jesus describes it as his yoke. He shrugs his shoulders under the yoke with us. He supports the weight, and so the load becomes easy. The yoke is light. It doesn't rub us the wrong way. It's not harsh. It's not hard. And we, we find rest. We're blessed in our doing. The second result that accrues is that we grow in our understanding of grace. We grow in grace, as Peter puts it. We come to see more of God's goodness, his kindness, his love for us. Because we realize that his will is good, as Paul puts it in in Romans 12, when we present our bodies to Christ as a 
as a living sacrifice, we discover that his will is good and it's pleasant and it's perfect. God's not trying to cramp our style. He's not a wet blanket. He's not trying to deprive us of anything. What he wants to do is fulfill our lives and and make them truly meaningful and, and satisfying. He wants us to become great in his eyes. He wants us to be real men and authentic women. And that's why he reveals his will. These are the things that, that will keep us from destroying our, our lives, the things that, that are spelled out in his word. And once we see that, we begin to delight in them. It's not harsh. It's good news. That's why the psalmist could delight in the law. No one delights in the law today but lawyers, but uh, the psalmist delighted in the law because he saw it was for his good. As Carolyn so often says, that uh, God's word, you know, it may start out like castor oil, but then it, it becomes oatmeal and finally it's chocolate. It's delightful. It's something you long for. So as we begin to, to take these small steps of faith, as we begin to do the things that our Lord asks us to do, no matter how, 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 how small they may be, unseen, unnoticed, we begin to discover God's goodness. His will becomes good and and pleasant and perfect to us. And finally, we begin to grow in greatness. We become legends like these people. You see, that's God's goal is to make us great. But not necessarily great in the eyes of the world. He doesn't promise that we'll be healthy and wealthy and that we'll have all the, the good things of, of life, that we'll have you know, the, this thing we dignify with the name of a higher standard of living or a better standard of living, whatever that is. It's not that we'll have more things. It's that we have resources for living life now, and we have a destiny that's fixed and certain, and there is, there is strength to cope with the problems that we have to face. There is the sense that things are, are okay in our relationship with God and others. We've been reconciled, and, and there's joy, and there's, there's peace. If, if you look at the, the rest of the accomplishments of these, uh, these people whose achievements are described for us, um, beginning with verse 35, though some women received back their dead, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. Some were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and, and holes in the ground. But they were all commended for their faith. God planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. They knew that something more was in the offing. They, there was another city that lay ahead, as the writer of Hebrews describes it here in in chapter 11, this world is not all there is. There's another world coming. And in the meantime, there are the resources to cope with life and face life right here where we are. So God has not promised that greatness means being carried to, uh, to the skies and flowery beds of ease. It simply means that uh, our destiny is fixed and certain and we have what it takes to live life right now. And furthermore, we know God. We're loved by him. We're cared for by him. 
we're in good hands. And the question is, then, what would God have us to do? Or, I think more importantly, what is it that God is saying to me right now? I don't have to tell you what that is. I don't have to, I don't have to remind myself what it is. I know what it is. There are things that God is asking you to do, and you know exactly what they are. As I've said before, the Spirit of God is always very precise. It's, it's the devil who raises in us, raises in us these feelings of, of, of ambiguous guilt, sort of free-floating guilt, and that we can't quite put our fingers on. And, and we think there's something we ought to do, but we don't quite know what it is that we ought to do. But I, I know the voice of the Spirit of God. It's always unequivocal. It's always very clear. It's always very precise. He says, this is what I'm asking you to do. And we know, we know what God is asking us to do. It may be to call someone up today on the telephone and confess your sin to someone. Perhaps way back in your past, you wronged someone in some way and and it, it comes to your memory every once in a while that you should call them up and set things right, but it's, it's very embarrassing to do so. It's very hard, but you know. You know. What is Jesus asking you to do? It, that What pleases God is that small act of faith, which is picking up the phone and doing what Jesus asks you to do. Perhaps it's to forgive someone, someone who wronged you, someone who abused you, someone who mistreated you. Someone who acted in a very unjust way toward you, deprived you of something, took away a lot of your self-respect or perhaps some of your, your money or property that you need to forget. Or perhaps it's some relationship that you're involved in, you're living with someone and you should not be there. You need to take whatever steps are necessary to pack your bags and get out of, of that apartment. Or perhaps... Um, God is saying to you, you need to reach out to someone in your community, the woman across the street, the man down the block, the fellow who works next to you in the office, take them out to lunch and just inquire into their relationship with Christ or simply to befriend them. But we know, we know what our Lord is asking us to do. Now, I I don't know if God has greatness in terms of what the world calls greatness in mind for us. Perhaps he... He does. I don't think that makes any any difference. I don't even think that's our business. Whatever God does with us is his business. It's our responsibility to follow him. As Jesus put it, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them to them eternal life, and they will never perish. We're in his hands. We're safe. We're secure. It's just our job to follow him. It's our business to do what he asks you to do. That's what it means to be his sheep and to follow him. So my question this morning to myself and to you is, what is Jesus asking me? What is Jesus asking you to do? That's the thing we must do. Now, before before we go, I want to say a word about grace because I want you to understand that that you cannot do something to be acceptable to God. There isn't any way, there isn't any act in this, in this world that you and I can do to be acceptable to God. Because you're already acceptable to God in the Beloved One. If you have put yourself into Christ, if you've taken that step of, 
of faith and you've entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You've believed that he's your savior. You've been accepted in him. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to be made more acceptable. You're already acceptable. God likes you. I always think of Zacchaeus, the funny little man who was up in his tree and Jesus spied him and invited himself over to dinner. He befriended Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus ever decided to change. It's the way God is. He's he's always reaching out for us, loves us. We're accepted in, in him. We simply have to accept that acceptance. We have to receive it. So nothing that you do or don't do is going to affect your relationship with with Christ in terms of of acceptance. You're already liked. You're already in him. Nor should we see uh, this issue of obedience as doing things because we should or we must or we have to. We do these things because we know we're loved. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's our Lord's love for us that drives us. It's when we understand the mercy of God that we're willing to to make ourselves a living sacrifice and we see how much he cares about us and we just want to respond in obedience to him. We do it because we're loved. Now I'd like to have you take your hymn book uh, out, if you would, and turn to hymn number 320. And I'd like to, uh, I want to read um, a couple of verses in this hymn, and then we'll stand and sing it. I hadn't even thought of this hymn until uh, this morning uh, when I was looking over my notes, and it just occurred to me that this hymn is just saying again what, what I've tried to say from this chapter. Look at the first uh, stanza. When we walk with the Lord... In the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. We take these little steps of obedience. We don't know what the next step is, but when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, he'll let us know what the next step is. I don't need to worry about this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day or or next year. We're we're entering a year when, when no one knows what's going to happen. All I have to do is just follow the Lord through the year. And whatever he asks me to do, that's what I need to do. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, faith is. It's trusting that this word from the outside is true and obeying it. Doing whatever small thing God is asking you to do. And when we do so, as the hymn writer puts it, he abides with us, not in any sense that he's separate from us when we don't obey, but there's a very special sense in which he moves alongside us. Remember the verse that we quoted up here? He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will love him and will manifest ourselves to him. In other words, there's a sense in which he becomes more real, more tangible. We begin to sense the power that's available to us to obey. Verse 4. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. We'll never know how delightful his word is. We'll never know how good God is until we begin to act in obedience 
to him, and then we discover the goodness of his word. That words were found, Jeremiah said, and I ate them. And they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. How do you discover the goodness of the Lord? Well, you have to taste it first. We have to act on the truth. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet. Or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do. Where he sins we will go. Never fear. Only trust and obey. God may have some momentous things in mind for you this year, or maybe it's just to plod uh, through the year and just do the daily things that have to be done. But we don't need to fear. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to be tr- but to trust and obey. One, one of the reasons that we're not happy, one of the reasons that we're not satisfied with with our Lord, one of the reasons we don't really enjoy Him is that we have one leg in the world and one leg in Christ, and we're trying to play it both ways instead of just simply following Him. And that's when life becomes meaningful and satisfying and, and fulfilling. So that would be my word for for us as we look at the new year. Who knows what the new year is going to bring? All our task is not to try to discern the future. I find that I uh, I'm a much uh, I do much better at learning God's will in in retrospect than I do in prospect. I have no idea what God has in mind for us this year. But it's not my business to know today. It's my business to simply do what Jesus is asking me to do right now. And do it out of a heart of love for him. Do it because I know he cares. Do it because I know that he's for me. He's not against me. He's for me. And then to wait until he reveals in his word the next thing to do. And then to do that. And that's what makes us great. That's what's pleasing to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders. This is nothing new. It's truth. It's been embedded in the word from the very beginning. People have discussed this idea of faith from the beginning of the world. It's it's the way in which you want us to approach you. It's the way by which we gain your good pleasure, your approval. We want to be faithful servants. We want to come to the end of each day and and say we've simply done what, what we're supposed to do. We've only done our duties, not any... Anything extraordinary, we've followed you through the day. We've done what you've asked us to do moment by moment. That's our intention for this year. But we know how hollow our resolutions sound to others and to ourselves. How difficult it is to follow through. We know that that though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so we ask that you would... Be our protector, our defender, that you would guard our souls, that you would deliver us from temptation, that you would give us the strength and the will and the power to do what you've asked us to do and to do it out of a sense of dependence, reliance upon you, knowing that the one who has called us is faithful and he will do it. And so we, uh, this morning, present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We ask that you take what we offer 
the, the lives that uh, we've squandered and misused in the past and put them to your intended purpose. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.